freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Culminators, thank you for joining us today. Aaron Sabarium. Aaron, very simple name. Sabarium, never heard a name like that before. He's going to explain to us what the hell kind of name he thinks it is. He's an American. He's not sensitive about that. I don't don't ask you what kind of name Coleman is. Anyway, Aaron is a writer, right for the Free Beacon. His beat is our beat. He talks a lot about and writes a lot about researches, issues of uh, free speech and campus culture, uh, um, cancel culture, with some certain amount of um, focus. I think on what's going on on campuses where our future is being destroyed right now, and. Uh, uh, um, Aaron, you're out of college, what, about 15 minutes? Or did you even uh, graduate from Yale? Yeah, so I graduated in 2018. Okay, all right, so um, that's already four whole years. But you could have gone twice by now. Yeah, yeah, which is which is hard for me to believe. Well, but you wrote you were, you were wrote for the Daily, uh, the, the, the Yale Daily News, or yeah. were you the editor? Um, so I wrote opinion columns for it. And I also was the opinion editor of it ah, for a year. And the year that I was an editor was the same year that Nicholas Christakis was encircled in the Silliman Courtyard. And Yale had all sorts of struggle sessions and they changed the name of Calhoun College, all of that. So so for people who are familiar with the whole Halloween costume Christakis affair, I was basically, you know, there and and having to edit opinion columns about it while it was going on and um, which was sort of my first first exposure yeah. to the real kind of you know beating heart of campus leftism why don't you tell us about it i i will for i will tell you that i ask people to tell what their followers inevitably already know is the backstory but it's a big old world out there, and a lot of uh, culminators are um, closer to my closer to my age than to yours, and they might not necessarily be on top. Now, in our house, we talk about cancel culture and college, uh, especially as it affects colleges all all day and all night, seven days a week. But you thought you were having a normal life, and you thought you you were having this great time being the opinion editor. Well, when you were the opinion editor for the Yale Daily, were you politically? conservative at the time not really so i came into college a pretty moderate democrat you know i i think for a while even when i was in high school i kind of had an inkling of what i guess back then we called it political correctness what that was and that it was bad um but i also thought yeah barack obama right about most things um republicans wrong about most things you know, I know whose side I'm on, et cetera, et cetera. And I came into college and I remember this very vividly. They have all these debating societies at Yale. Um, and since I was a Democrat, I thought, oh, I'll go to the party at the left. That'll be the right fit for me, right? 
Well, the first debate they were having was resolved, abolish the police. And I saw that and thought, well, that's stupid. Like, no one, no one, no one's ever going to take something like that seriously, right? Especially in New Haven. Yeah, yeah, especially in New Haven. What, Not you know, especially. Why I mean, there well, are there are harsher places on God's yes, green earth, but yes. yeah, yeah. So, and then you know, the Conservative Party was debating something cool, like you know, resolve that Socrates deserved to die. So I thought, <laughs> oh, I'll go, I'll go hang out with those guys because that's a cooler debate. But so, you know, right from the start, I kind of was like, huh, I thought I was on the left, but these left-wing people believe very strange, crazy things. Where, um, and then, where, where did you grow up, Aaron? I grew up in uh, Chevy Chase, Maryland. So, you know, and Normal, my dad is, so, my dad is a lawyer. Like... Yeah, my dad is like a, you know, a Jewish lawyer in DC. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I have no reason to be reactionary based on sort of my background. Um, but... But yeah, so, you know, I, I got some inklings of it my freshman year at Yale that, oh, huh, wow, the left means something very different here. Um, and then in 2015, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into, but basically the, the, the nuts and bolts of it is a woman sent a very, uh, an administrator sent a very anodyne email saying that if you're offended by Halloween costumes, you should talk to each other and not expect the administration to police Halloween costumes. This was seen as a horrible act of racism and, you or know, at least violence. a provocation. Yeah, yeah, provocation. yeah. How dare you and, suggest? And, how dare you suggest that we, young adults, handle this in the manner that might right. fit adults? <laughs> right. So then there was, uh, you know, uh, her husband, who was like the head of one of the dorms, residential colleges, ends up getting encircled in the courtyard, and all these activists shout. Uh, you know, shout at him for like an hour and there's video of it. Um, and then there's all sorts of protests going on and the narrative quickly becomes Yale is a systemically racist institution. Um, you know, that needs to be rebuilt from the ground up basically. And of course the president of Yale University does not uh, dismiss all this as the absurdity that it is, but instead validates it and says, oh, you know, I'm I'm so touched by your outpouring of, of emotion, blah, 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 blah. So my question for you, Aaron, is you mentioned that you made a point of mentioning that the Yale, the president at Yale basically folded immediately. Mm -hmm. Did you begin at that time to know, was that what you expected would happen? Did you, did, did you think they're gonna there's gonna be some pushback we're the we're the students they're the um you know in retrospect it seems obvious he would fold i think at the time i don't even know if i well i was a little surprised because in my freshman year his kind of opening address to all the new students was about the importance of free speech and then of course you know with this he he tries to claim oh well we haven't silenced anyone so this is and protest is free speech. So this is actually a, a actualization of the values I talked about, which was of course bullshit because the, the, the ideology um, that was ascendant was one that saw acts of free speech as violence, right? And he was essentially endorsing these, these protests that were predicated on this assumption. So, you know, that was, that was silly. But yeah, I mean, I was a little struck by... What I really wasn't expecting 
more than anything about just how he responded was just how rapidly the campus climate would change, right? I would say in 2014, it was a pretty open place. I mean, you had kids who got triggered by little things and would whine on social media, but just most people didn't really care. Um, and then all these protests happened. And I would say for at least a year or two afterwards, really everyone was walking on eggshells and there was a palpable change. And I know people who I think, you know, before the protests were pretty comfortable about speaking their mind, you know, then afterwards would tell me, I, you know, I can't write anything. I can't say anything. I'm, I'm scared. Um, so that was kind of my first real exposure to how Orwellian it can get. Um, and, you know, that, that didn't, it didn't change my politics, you know, or my policy views maybe on the economy overnight. But you were not yet the but you were not yet the editorial page editor. No, I was while this you was were. All going on. So that's yeah. uh-huh. And and so and so like a, a, a dynamic I had to deal with was where well, A, some people would come in with just for one, I mean, just horribly written op-eds, you know, complaining about systemic racism, and I'd have to edit them and pretend that they were not horrible. Um which is fine. I mean, it's good, good practice of being professional with people you disagree with. Um, <laughs> but, 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 um, you know, also I would like try to get people to write op-eds attacking this stuff. And I managed to get a few, but it was, it was tough to find because, you know, very few people wanted to put their name on anything, especially, I mean, some people would say things like, well, it's important to listen to all sides, but you know, what, it took me a while to get, I did get someone to write this eventually, but, and I remember it vividly because I was so happy I could get it, was someone who would just say, not just free speech is good, but the substantive worldview being advanced by these kids is bad. It is dangerous and toxic and will be the death of the university as we know it. And nobody wanted to say that even though it was just obviously true, right? To the extent people would criticize it, it would always be on these kind of narrow procedural free speech grounds. And yes, I mean, free speech is important, but also for one, you're not going to have free speech if kind of these sorts of uh, premises seep through and saturate the culture. But for another thing, you know, even putting free speech aside, just the whole worldview about racism pervading everything um, and everything being white supremacy. I mean, it's just, it's just wrong. And if you try to run a society on it, you're going to have problems. Um, so this, so, so the free speech issue, was that the the lever that began to get you to re-examine all your political assumptions? Yeah, that was a lot of it. I mean, you know, and the other thing I'll say is like, even to this day, right, if you ask me what's the best healthcare system or what's sort of the optimal tax policy, there's all sorts of discrete issues where I don't have strong views and in fact probably might lean towards Democrats if like you pushed me. Um, but I would say that uh, I've really come to realize that a lot of the stuff people think of as just those crazy college kids is in fact very deeply institutionalized in now not just on not just on campuses but in the media um in in you know ngos in culture and in particular in in certain sort of professional bureaucracies that actually exert power uh over people's lives and 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 now i would argue is in fact you know kind of 
has been in, institutionalized in various ways within the federal government. Um, and some of those operations of power are kind of vague and shadowy and are hard to see. But a lot of what I've tried to do, in addition to reporting on just the campus craziness, is show how actually these views do have concrete policy implications and do in fact turn into policies. Um, I mean, the, the, the textbook example I always go to is all the states and medical agencies that rationed vaccines and monoclonal antibodies um, for COVID based on race, um, which just, I think if you told someone 10 years ago, we would be doing that, they'd say, well, that, come on, that's absurd. No, no one on the left really believes in doing this. But now it's like listed as a medical best practice pretty much on uh, HHS's website, right? And multiple states, including Utah, Help, which is not not no one would consider a sort of bastion of liberalism, but Utah did this right. So it's actually gone extremely far, um, and in many ways, I mean, I think that's really the deeper issue. Like, yes, free speech matters; it's important, but um, you know, there's also a whole bunch of just like substantive policy questions that have now uh, kind of, without the public noticing, been decided. Um, in, in favor of a really pretty radical uh, ideology. So now you're writing for the Free Beacon. Did you yes. land there right after college? After college, I worked at a place called the American Interest, um, which now no longer exists, although there's kind of a successor magazine to it. Um, and it was a good place to work after college. I mean, it was like a very sort of intellectual centrist uh, publication started by Frank Fukuyama um, in the early 2000s. Kind of originally the project was kind of to rescue neoconservatism from the neoconservatives. It was sort of formed by people who were broadly sympathetic to the neoconservative worldview, but thought that Iraq um, had gone wrong. Um, you know, I would say eventually it kind of turned into something a little different, but um, yeah, it was a pretty centrist publication, that, you know, anti-Trump, but also anti-woke. Um, and then I went over to the Free Beacon, edited there for a little bit, and then pretty quickly decided to to start doing reporting uh, full time. So that's that's basically how I got to where I am. Have your views on Donald Trump evolved? Not, uh, not that much. I mean, I still think that he made some important interventions into the discourse and had some positive effects. Uh, I, you know, when he was first running, thought this guy does not seem temperamentally fit to be president and I don't really want to see him behind the, uh, the desk of, of the Oval Office. And by the end of it, and in particular after January 6th, I was like, yeah, I think my intuition was was basically right, you know? This was not this was not good and and you know while not entirely foreseeable it was it was not exactly surprising that something like this happened so you know I, no I'm look I'm not a Trump fan I I I think he for every good thing he did he also set in motion a lot of bad things that I don't like I also my my biggest concern about him frankly is not that he 
was or is going to usher in some kind of American fascism. I don't really see that happening. The concern is that he just sort of breaks down lots of norms and guardrails and then provokes such a reaction on the other side that we just get into this sort of iterative death spiral where both sides continue to break norms in response to the other and eventually just all the kind of unspoken assumptions on which you know like modern american you know democracy rests kind of go away and then you know i actually think it's probably more likely that if we got some sort of totalitarian regime out of this it would be more kind of a woke soft totalitarianism with just fewer guardrails um but but ultimately look you know it doesn't, something doesn't have to be anything like fascism or dictatorship to be bad, right? There's lots of Latin American countries that are just sort of banana republics and, and have low quality governance and political instability, et cetera. And you can have a lot of that without it really being dictatorship, right? So I don't really see like the, the dark resistance prophecies of, of Trumpian fascism coming true, but so many other bad things could happen that, I mean, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still pretty opposed to Trump. The thing, here's where I would say I've changed. I, I probably went into college being like, I'm, I would only vote for like, you know, a super moderate Republican, maybe. And now, I mean, let's just say, uh, I would, I would very much enjoy watching a DeSantis presidency. Um, and, you know, my, my issues with Trump really have more to do with sort of him personally and my worries about him being fit for office than with like, you know, some, some people are like, oh my God, and he's un-American because he supports industrial policy. No, that's, that's like not a good, that's not a good argument against Trump. I mean, even if you do oppose industrial policy, that's like not a big deal. Um, so, so, I mean, at this point, I'm like, I, I would like there to be someone in the Oval Office who understands wokeness is bad and also like uses his office to fight it or uses it efficaciously yes and that's the other thing i i think trump put some things on the table that were good but i don't think he actually especially on the woke stuff you know he did that one executive order banning like crt trainings in the government which then got immediately reversed right like if he had done that the day he took office, it might have had more of an effect, but you know, he just did it at the last minute at the end of his presidency. I just, you know, didn't didn't do that much. Now, do you think you know? You mentioned something you said in a second ago sparked a question for me, which was: Is there a middle anymore? Do you think you know? People are always talking about swing votes, and we both know Twitter is not real life, mm. but nonetheless experiencing life as we do and reading those annual uh you know columns on how to interact or how to not interact with your awful terrible horrible right-wing family do you think there is a middle anymore or is that you know that that matters that the people are there people who really need to have their minds made up between Democrat and Republican candidates as opposed to people just being dum-dums? Um, I think there's a difference. Do you agree with me that there's a difference? Well, yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely. I mean, look, I mean, empirically, there obviously are, there are swing voters. Um, I, 
I do think there are a lot of people in the middle. There certainly are a lot of people, and I and you see this even at the elite level, who feel politically homeless, right? People like, I guess, I would put Barry Weiss maybe in this category, who who maybe a few years ago would have been just a sort of normal liberal, and now it's like, I mean, she's not really a conservative, but she's also not really welcome on the left. I mean, I mean that is a growing phenomenon, and I think there are a lot of people who, who feel quite a bit yeah i mean he's a little he's a little more uh his politics i think are a little more exotic than barry's but yes i mean no he's he's i mean a lot of these guys the the it's not totally clear where they fall um well i mean to to me it's interesting watching a a number of them they can't let go of their old identities yeah yeah i mean i think that's right and and you know i think some of well i mean glenn greenwald actually i think he, no, he, no, he, he's, he's whatever he is. He's, I yeah. don't think he's afraid of anything. He's never been afraid right. of anything. Yeah. And I, uh, you mean, I, you know, I saw him at Freedom Fest, uh, in, in July. I mean, mm-hmm. I said to myself, Glenn Greenwald, I mean, he was speaking fine, but Glenn Greenwald is here at Freedom Fest. I mean, this guy yeah. is such a bomb throwing lefty in the day, but there's no question that a lot of, people who have the intellectual on some degree of intellectual honesty Mm. have either had to decide do i have any or do i have none i mean in that respect there's very little middle because you've got yeah 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 i mean i mean i think i think you know part of this too that there is i wouldn't call them dum-dums but there's also i think there are a lot of well there's a lot of people who who it's not even that they're unsophisticated it's that like they just don't have that much time and you know they have jobs and they read the new york times which presents a certain narrative right and they probably i think there's a lot of democrats who if they really knew and understood what some segments of the left, maybe not so much the Democratic Party per se, but certainly what the kind of bureaucracies that are aligned with the Democratic Party are doing, like this, you know, race-based medicine stuff. I mean, I think they'd probably think, whoa, holy shit, that, that's kind of crazy. Um, but it's really, it, it, it can be very hard to break through, you know, to just normie, normie people who think that they have their tribe. Um, etc especially if they're not really already following this stuff closely um so you know i've definitely had conversations with people where i or or heard about conversations where you know someone says well you know like they're they're literally denying like white people medical care and of course then it's like that's just what tucker carlson and donald trump say and it's like well no i actually i have the document like right here i mean here's 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 how many points they give for being non white and it's like substantial and you know white people are the only ones who don't get these points like this is just the definition i mean i know you're not supposed to say anti white racism or anti white discrimination but i don't know what else you call it right that's just the the most sort of parsimonious term uh, for what's going on uh, and i mean i think a lot of people either just can't believe it or, or they say, oh, that must be disinformation uh, because they're so kind of ensconced in this uh, media echo chamber that, you know, they don't really see it. And what, what does tend to wake people up, it seems, is when the insanity starts to actually materially affect their lives. So, you know, with crime, like, 
you are, I think, starting to see some people say, wait a minute, you know, it, it was it was kind of okay for a few months in 2020 when we were all tired of being in lockdown and we wanted to protest racial justice, blah, blah, blah. You know, two years later, even even really people in, in deep blue San Francisco are like, oh, you know, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be allowing people to just defecate in the streets. That's not great, right? Um, but it like, it, it really, you know, it's, you have to be canceled. You have to know someone who's canceled. You have to experience the costs of sort of the, the racially inflected woke politics um, to start really asking yourself the questions that would lead you to maybe realize, oh, wow, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of crap in these bureaucracies I didn't know about. Um, Right, and, I mean, yeah. in you know Idaho, you mentioned before, if the the fact that you have these medical racialist, let's call it, yeah, policies. Utah, oh Utah, Utah, oh, sorry. yeah, um, so right, yeah. right, the, the, even so, crazier, yeah. So so, it's not because the people have voted for that; they just no. have no clue or control over what professional right. bureaucrats are doing in their name yeah correct correct now 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 granted i mean that proposal i don't know if he technically officially signed off on it but it looks like that in utah more or less had the approval of the republican governor so in theory right i mean i am not optimistic this will happen but someone could challenge him in an election and say, you know, this Republican governor kind of let the bureaucracy do this with, with sort of a wink, wink. And, you know, we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna stand for that, you know, rhino nonsense or whatever, right? Someone could do that. But yeah, in general, um, it, the, the the prime movers are, are the bureaucracies. This, uh, it's not like the Republican governor of Utah came up with the idea to do anti-white racial discrimination in medicine. I mean, that was, you know, that was, that was hatched really, um, at like a, a hospital network and, um, and in the Utah public health department. Um, and I would note too, this is the other thing that, that can be tough is that they themselves don't even often, I think, realize that that's what they're doing. Right. Like they all saw it. Cause I, I did a story on this where I sort of went through their emails that I got through a FOIA. It's very clear. They just thought about it in terms of, well, you know, people of certain groups are more, dying more of COVID. So the utilitarian thing to do is just to give them preference, which like when you phrase it at that high a level of generality doesn't sound crazy. And you could say, well, but like we gave preference to old people. What's the difference? Well, I mean, the difference is that A, you know, old people actually are, that's a much better predictor of COVID mortality than race. And and also, you know, this shouldn't need to be said, but like uh, race has a, race is a kind of inflammatory basis for allocating any good or service in a way that age just isn't given the history and demographic composition of the United States. And like, you know, you don't really hear about societies torn apart by like age discrimination <laughs> or like, or like generational, but I mean, well, maybe there's a way you can kind of read some, you know, certain, certain histories of Weimar Germany is actually being like a kind of generational, but okay, fine. But like in general, right, you know, it's, it's a when societies implode, yeah, it's it's <laughs> ethnic, it's ethnic and racial yeah. conflict, right? That's what blows up societies, not like boomers and Gen Z hating each other. So I, I think I think uh uh yeah, like like there's 
a lot of these folks, the, the, the race consciousness is just so ingrained into kind of the received wisdom of public health, for example, that they don't even realize fully what they're doing. Um, it's just, I, I, I'm reminded a bit of the banality of evil concept in Hannah Arendt, right? I, I truly, you know, I'm sure there are some like really crazy people, but I think a lot of them are kind of working on autopilot and genuinely don't get what's going on until, you know, I report a piece on it and then Tucker Carlson picks it up and then they start getting all these, you know, phone calls slamming them for, you know, anti-white racism. And then, and then of course, suddenly the policy goes away because um, they get new data, you know, two weeks after, two weeks after the story uh, that makes them look really bad, which suddenly justifies provoking the, the discrimination. Well, I mean, that's it. Cause you mentioned that I'm looking at your Twitter feed and ABA, Basically, the American Bar Association basically put their toe in, in uh, their foot in that water and said, uh, you know, experienced the pushback and, you know, concluded this is what was the water that they they had they had proposed. Yeah. Basically raced, you know, norming uh, law school classes to require law schools to diversify their student bodies. What would, how would that have been different from affirmative action? Well, so so the reason it was controversial initially was that, well, A, so the American Bar Association accredits basically every law school in the United States. So you got you to gotta do what the American Bar Association tells you to do. Um, and obviously, law schools already practice affirmative action. So this proposal effectively would have been telling them you've got to practice even more affirmative action to sort of, you know, make progress in being even more diverse, right? Um, so it just would have, it would have amplified it. And, you know, there was a line in the initial version of the proposal, which said that anti-discrimination laws would not be considered a justification for not complying with the accreditation standard. <laughs> so then these Yale law professors just basically said, well, you're you're basically telling schools that they need to violate federal law to remain their certification to retain their certification. That's insane. You're a law school accrediting body. You're supposed to care what the law says, you know, what the hell? And so then they revised it and got rid of that language. But you know, still like they were going to have them, I think, have to submit basically like data progress reports on how much diversity they had to their accreditor. And I mean, that's obviously going to create pressure to do all sorts of racial balancing, um, potentially beyond what federal law allows. Um, I mean, I'm skeptical that the alleged constraints on racial balancing under the current affirmative action regime actually do very much to constrain it, but still, you know, this, this would have really like, you know, tested, tested the waters. So it, it's not clear to me how much of their revoking this standard had to do with the kind of pushback that it would make them violate the law versus kind of almost internal woke pushback where some people said, oh, it doesn't go far enough because it focuses too much on race and not enough on like LGBTQ and disability, which was another thing people said. So, you know, who knows what, what really made the difference, but it, but nonetheless, you know, it's not the, it wouldn't be the only case in which uh, one of these bureaucracies does hold under enough kind of concerted pressure. The key is, generating the pressure both through reporting and I think through lawsuits in some cases um and you know that's hard to do because like 
a lot of the a lot of what happens in these institutions, it's especially true at universities, but not only there, is that they are they're on the hook for civil rights violations, right? What civil rights law does is it says even things done by private actors, discriminate, you know, alleged discrimination or hostile environment by private actors, that that's the government's business. And you know, you you're you're liable if if you allow any of this to happen. But you know, a private university is not bound by the First Amendment. So there's this huge, huge kind of imbalance of power where they they're sort of an incentive structure where they they are on the hook for allowing any kind of discrimination or harassment, however that's defined, but they're not on the hook for violating anyone's free speech. Um, and that's that's true of a lot of corporations, right? And and other institutions. They are on the hook for allowing harassment and they are not on the hook for censoring their employees. Um, so because of this uh, incentive asymmetry, you've seen this corresponding kind of imbalance of bureaucratic power within all the institutions where oh. they set up these compliant, they initially, right, they had these compliance departments for to comply with civil rights law, which made sense. And then, of course, those departments develop their own kind of incentives to keep perpetuating themselves, and they kind of grow into the DEI offices, which have to have to, you know, find you constant instances of racism and sexism to expunge, or they don't have a job, they can't justify their own existence. But because there's no like punishment for, you know, like just violating people's free speech or or doing all sorts of these other crazy things. Um, there's not really an incentive for there to be like a bureaucracy that that protects free speech or that sort of prosecutes free speech violations. So what you end up with is even if a university claims it has both, you know, discrimination protections and robust free speech protections, it's only the discrimination protections that have an entire enforcement bureaucracy behind them. So it's not surprising, right, that uh, the free, that it, universities end up uh, erring on the side of preventing discrimination rather than on protecting free speech. Well, have, um, you, ever, have you ever written an article about this, this? Yeah, I did. I did in the wake of a, a, a kind of this basic concept I, I talked about in an article in the wake of the initial Yale Law School, you know, the thing about the trap house email. Um, so for people who don't know, this kid sent a pretty anodyne email inviting students to his trap house like for a party. And then all these kids complained that that was racist. And the DEI bureaucrats called him in for a struggle session, which we got audio of, which was really crazy. Um, and, you know, a lot of people were like, this is insane. Because they, 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 they made these veiled threats that if he didn't apologize for this anodyne email, that they would like punish his, um, that they would that he, they could get him in trouble with uh, the bar's character and fitness section, right? So they basically were threatening his career over um, a totally anodyne email, right? And, and so in the wake of that, I wrote a piece where I, I talked to some law professors and academic freedom folks, and they said, you know, that this is a problem, right? Like, uh, we, have, we have this bureaucracy dedicated to, you know, protect, you know, fighting harassment, which in practice basically means uh, dedicated to regulating speech, and we don't have any bureaucracy dedicated to uh, protecting free speech. Um, and I think that's basically the, the norm um, at a lot of institutions. Uh, that's a fascinating point. I, I yeah. you know, I, I think you, I, uh, you quote Robert George, good old Robert George. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I guess you you do talk about that there, but I mean, I I invite you, I would urge you to to really do something specifically on that topic because you're bringing together two phenomena and it explains it explains the, the the juxtaposition of those two and the the asymmetry there raise really right. interesting issues that I, I never I, I think I had in fact I even remember having having that in the back of my head. Maybe it was during another interview where somehow the issue came up well that's not free speech that's you know that's the yeah you know the the, yeah. the woke stuff there is you know and, and and robert george of course thought he had put into place at princeton or it helped yeah give birth to you know a policy at princeton that reaffirmed the chicago principles and you know pursuant to which the that university my alma mater would guard free speech and that it would be an imperative of policy of Princeton. And he got absolutely, he and, and those who shared his views got absolutely uh, sandbagged or, or it was more like a bait and switch. I mean, about the Dean, uh, I mean, the president there, just awful, absolutely awful. They did to Joshua. Yeah. Pat. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, uh, no, I, and I agree. That's a function of, of the same, the same incentive problem, right? Um, now, granted, that one also, and, and this is related, that, that there was also all this sort of media attention, and I think that that's it's 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 not just the bureaucracy; it's it's that you know the it's the bureaucratic asymmetry coupled with a sort of media that aggressively reports on any alleged instance of sexual impropriety. Well, you know, you also, you made an important point about the ABA being in a, you know, the accrediting body right. for law schools in the country. I think part of the reason that they backed down was it, there are a million ways someone might use a law, a policy that is premised on violating federal law. Yeah, as an attack on their ability or right or appropriateness as an accrediting body, and that's incredibly important to them. I mean, you know, they're they're you know, ABA, which I have not been a member of in twenty five years, is a lobby. It's not, it's not like yeah. a, guild, a guild or you know, or an, it's not like you know, in, in bars with unitary, but you know, unitary bars where you have to be a member of the bar, American Bar Association to be an American lawyer. No relation at all. They have policies, they have politics, and they have things that they advocate for. That doesn't exist in universities except the very, except the smaller ones. Yale and Princeton, with multi multi billion dollar um, endowments, are no longer feeling any pain. They, they, their, their administrators have no financial incentive to worry about crusty old conservative alumni. Those are mostly dead or already donating somewhere else. They need yeah. the money coming in from, yeah. the, you know, the progressive alumni who are their bread and butter. Yeah, and frankly, I think they even do. I mean, some of them still do get donations from conservative alums who have to essentially acknowledge that the universities are horrible, but delude themselves into thinking, well, it's just that the, you know, Eisgruber, the Princeton president, he's bad, but the next president will be better. 
no, 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 no. This is not about any one person. This is about an entire system, right? And I think, yeah, you know, it, probably even if the donor, if the conservative donors all stopped giving, it wouldn't make a difference. But they they won't even stop giving, which is another thing that really frustrates me. I'm like, why the hell would you? I mean, look, I don't have a ton of money, but like, just on principle anyway, even if I did, like, I'm not going to give a cent to Yale because... Mm -hmm. It just, yeah, they, they need to feel as much pain as possible. And look, this is the other thing I'll say. I I would like it. I, I joked about this, that, you know, DeSantis, if he's president, should do like an FBI raid of a different university I every week. That. And it's like, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of kidding, but like they, they really, you know, you, you got to make these things, make them feel some pain, right? So like, you know, taxing their endowments. There's all sorts of things that I think uh, could be done or at least put on the table. Um, that would be uh, that would be good. Um, well, I mean, and I think both with I think there's a parallel with universities and tech companies and other many other institutions, NGOs, that they are private institutions uh -huh. and all of a sudden the left is enamored of the liberties of private institutions and many on the right including people who have been or had been libertarians are realizing i wish i had that meme of the guys in prison that says i've made a terrible mistake they, yeah. you know trusting this idea that well we can trust the market we could you know and very few libertarians wanted to hear about the threat from corporate governance yeah, non so-called nonprofits like universities are have the same exact incentives as for-profit institutions. Neither one of them is concerned about profit because woke BlackRock doesn't care about its profits; it cares about its agendas. I mean, they're controlling so much money right. that people who invest in their funds are, are being ignored. I mean, there's, there's already litigation over that. Yeah, I, I saw this, but well, right. It's also, you know, it's, it's diminishing marginal returns, right. As, as you get, once you're past a certain level of material comfort, you're kind of liberated to worry about non-material things. And so, you know, in order to really reverse that, you, you'd have to really just make these institutions a lot poorer and that may not be possible but but you know the other thing i'll say is uh, like with princeton right they get all this sort of media attention and student protests that probably i think pushed them to to discipline and then eventually you know fire joshua katz but you also do it can go in the other direction as, as the aba thing shows right and and i think that's that's the other thing like you know, what one reason I, I like my job is that I actually, you know, it's not enough on its own, but I do think that it is possible for sort of conservative or if you like just kind of heterodox media to really up the pressure on these that these institutions. But you can't do that by like just writing sort of philosophical essays about why free speech is good and why, ah, oh, you know, Alan Bloom was right, the universities are lost. No, no, no. What you have to do is just go and show people, here's what's going on, right? And here are the facts. And, you know, like, here's, here's, here's President, you know, Christopher Eisgruber's email, you know, go tell him what you think. <laughs> like, and, and, that's kind of, uh, 
I mean, I do think that that sort of thing can actually work. It's like, like Yale Law School, for example, you saw after I published some stories on the insanity that, that, that's that been going on there, they did start issuing statements being like, oh, that was protected speech. We would never blah, 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 and, and doing damage control, right? Um, and even- uh, and da David know. Latt, who was a very influential yep. alumnus among people who are not part of the international global conspiracy, uh, you know, he had an open letter also. I mean, the thing about Yale alumni, unlike almost any other school except maybe Harvard, but even then Harvard mm -hmm. is so big that I mean, who isn't a Harvard Law School? I, I didn't get into Harvard Law School, but all the movers and shakers who aren't Yale Law School graduates are Harvard Law School graduates. Right. But right. Yale is a much more is a much more select club and much more of an elite. Like in other words, when those people complain and when someone like you from the Yale community and having been a Yale Daily News um, op-ed editor, it gets heard. It gets heard. I do think, though, again, the analogy to the ABA is not so good because the ABA has to worry about its accreditation. Yeah, it's yeah. harder to it's harder to ask. It's harder to see what Yale has to worry about. Also, yeah. there, there are very few parents who, if they have the chance to send their children to Yale notwithstanding the cost will say listen this looks this looks like an absolute clown show but you know yeah you know bunny don't you think do you think you can hold your breath and keep your mouth shut for four years because your life will be perfect after you graduate from yeah i know right? that's the problem i mean I, I i also think another thing is is to the extent that government policies have kind of exacerbated the credentialism you know crisis in our country that that's another area that we we need a, a smart, competent Republican to, to to work on, right? Like it. The reality is that I think college is mostly signaling. You know, I mean, yes, like Yale, there there are network effects, and and there is certainly value to going to that school. But the truth is that you know the people who get into Yale are generally people who would be fine even if they didn't get into Yale because they're smart and ambitious and hardworking. Um, and those things do matter to some extent in the market. And often, and often, and often already decently well connected. Yes, yes, exactly. And so, and so, you know, one thing that could be done is, uh, look, I, I think that the credentialism is a, is a huge problem. And, you know, there's a lot of jobs that require college degrees that shouldn't. Um, and frankly, you know, now you, you have people like Peter Thiel, he has that fellowship where basically he pays you a bunch of money to drop out of college, right? You know, and, and do other stuff. And to be honest, I think like more of that is good because, you know, especially if you're interested in something like tech or, or finance, my, my real sense is that you just, your like computer science classes in college are probably not gonna make or break your success i i, I just that my again i you know i don't know this isn't my world but from what i hear that's just people who think that it like matters whether you take you know harvard's like graduate computer science class or not they just this is not the way that like you know face it's not like facebook is like some super complicated you know algorithm that requires like a you know, PhD in theoretical mathematics to create. Like that's not why Mark Zuckerberg was successful. Um, it was, it was, it was other stuff, right? right. And and I think, and so yeah, look, I, I think to the extent that we can um find ways of of uh undermining kind of the the 
tyranny of credentialism, we should. And, you know, you mentioned the ABA, I just, I'd add one more thing, you know, it's the only recognized law school accreditor by the U.S. Department of Education. My understanding is that there is nothing to stop a secretary of education in the next administration, next Republican administration, from just basically saying, we're not going to recognize you and thus, you know, we'll not make law schools like no law school will be accredited by you will be eligible for federal funds. Unless, of course, you show that you really are like a good accrediting body and are not just a woke advocacy group, you know, like they could they could threaten because they, they could overnight revoke their 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 recognition by the Department of Education. And I mean, they wouldn't have to do it. They just make a credible threat. And then the ABA would probably probably stop yeah. being woke. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so it's not like there's nothing you could do. I mean, now, of course, th there'd be this called media firestorm about how Ron DeSantis was politicizing accreditation, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the, I think the response to that would be, look, guys, look at what the ABA has already done. Like the idea that it's not already a like woke political body that's effectively just an extension of the democratic machine right. is a fantasy and absurd. And there's just, there's, and fundamentally, it is a political question, what we're going to recognize as what the political bodies of the United States will recognize, right? Um, so just just lean into the politics and say, yes, this is a political question, and we're doing politics, and suck it up. Like, like either get in line, or we're going to punish you. And and I, I don't see any problem with doing that. Um, and And I think that uh, if we got someone in power who who was interested, you know, yeah, like that could that could potentially make a big difference. Or just hell, you know, the American Medical Association, the the medical school creditors are also insane. You know, it's like you don't even have to like make the explicit threat. You just like do a congressional subpoena, like haul them in front of like you know a bunch of senators and just have them be grilled for like an hour in a really embarrassing hearing. And like, I bet they would probably back off from some of the crazy stuff, right? These the, these people do not like publicity. They they the wokeness tends to advance in the shadows, um, and they're not good, I think, at defending a lot of this crap. In part because it's so deeply institutionalized that they don't even they haven't had to think about defending it. So yeah, you can definitely, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily optimistic in the short run, but. There's tons and tons of things that you could do to fight back against this stuff, which would not involve violating the law or, you know, riding roughshod over some really cherished democratic norm. It would just be, you know, normal politics, right? Exercising powers that are already like, you know, within, already exist within the government um, for perfectly legitimate ends, you know, I, I think it actually is possible to to use the political process to fight back against some of this stuff. Political and free speech. I mean, you're obviously making yes, good use of it. Yes. And Aaron, you you are leaning into it big time. You seem like you've got a lot of creative ideas, and uh, I bet you're open to growing and observing and watching things as they develop. Um, anything special coming up has anyone got you writing books yet is uh any any uh speaking tours anything you want to pitch not just uh the main thing i'll pitch read his own yeah the main thing i'll pitch but beyond just you know read my stuff but also uh 
I, I co-host a podcast with Charles Lehman at the Manhattan Institute um, called Institutionalized, where we talk about various American institutions and why they've gone crazy. Uh, and uh, a lot of it is looking at kind of incentive structures and bureaucratic logics that uh, create a lot of the the, the woke stuff. Um, we sort of try to go beyond just complaining about the ideology or, or adopting these hand-wavy cultural explanations and really get into some sort of more concrete material analysis. Um, and we've done over 20 episodes. Uh, and yeah, I, I think if, if you liked the way that I sort of analyzed the problems um, in this episode, you should check out my podcast because that's generally how we analyze problems through the lens of institutions. Very, very interesting. I think I will. I mean, I'm not known for listening to podcasts. It's one of my running jokes. I don't have the patience, but it seems like you've got an interesting mm -hmm. couple of takes here. And I like your title. It seems to allude to a punk rock song from my days of college. <laughs> am I, am I yeah. onto something? Oh, I wanted was uh, a Pepsi. We were, we were, yeah. I think, we, I think, I think Charles may have had that in mind. <laughs> it's also, it's a, it's a double entendre, right? Institutional, because we're talking about institutionalization, you know, as in things get institutionalized within institutions, but also, um, you know, institutionalized. It sounds like crazy, and like our our institutions are crazy. Uh, they deserve to be institutionalized in, in various ways. Well, so, thank you very yeah. much for for joining us. Okay, in any event, it's there. More important to listen to the podcast, more important to listen to this podcast as well. Aaron, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, it really has been fascinating listening to you. And I'm looking forward to uh, more dialogue with you, as they say. And uh, you're, a, you're a guy to watch. Thanks thank for coming you. on the show. Thank you. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.